We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the following study from Calvary Chapel, Elmani. It's our simple prayer that you would grow stronger and deeper in an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Should you have any questions, please feel free to contact us here at Calvary Chapel, Elmani. You know, as you study the scriptures, you discover that Jesus' original hometown of Nazareth had rejected him. We read that terrible story in Luke 4, 16 through 30. And so as a result of that, they, uh, they kicked him out, and now Capernaum becomes more or less the hometown of Jesus. We read in Matthew 4, verse 13, it says, Leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum. Now the word translated dwelt, it means just that. It's talking about someone settling down in that sense to kind of live somewhere. And so when it comes to Christ, he dwelt in Capernaum. Although Jesus spent most of his time traveling and teaching throughout the country, this was his hometown. So Jesus spent some serious time in Capernaum. If you remember uh, back in Mark 1 verse 21, uh, Jesus taught in the synagogue there in Capernaum. Uh, if you go to Israel, you'll be able to see that synagogue. He cast a demon out of a man who was there in the synagogue in Capernaum. We read that in Mark 1, 23 through 26. And then after that, if you read the Bible, they went straight to the house of Peter there in Capernaum. And Jesus not only healed Peter's mother-in-law that day, but that evening, the whole city, think about it, was gathered together at the door, and Jesus healed the sick and cast out demons there in Capernaum. And so, you know, they obviously, they wanted him to just kick back. They wanted him to stay there. They wanted him to start a church. They didn't want him to leave, right? But the Bible says, as you continue to read through the book of Mark, that Jesus woke up the next morning before the sun, and he spent some time in prayer. And then as they're looking for him, they finally find him. And we read, if you go back real quick to Mark 1, verse 38, he said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. And so he was there in Capernaum. They wanted him to kick it there in Capernaum. But God said, no, I want you to go. I want you to teach in all these different cities of Galilee. They called it the Decapolis. And so we don't know how long he was gone. But you fast forward to Mark chapter 2. And Jesus Christ is back in Capernaum. You know? I mean, it's been a while. Word gets out. Jesus is back. Jesus is back. And immediately, so many people show up that they can't fit another person in the house. And just in case you said, no, I'm sure they can. I'm going to go and squeeze in anyways. Forget about it. Because the Bible says there in verse 2 that you couldn't even get anywhere near the door. That's how packed this place was. And so you look at this and... Just out of curiosity, what, what do you see going on here? You want to know what I see? I see fellowship. I do. I see fellowship. You know, we don't know for sure whose house this is, but there they are just hanging out together with Jesus as the centerpiece 
And Jesus is preaching the word to them. And they're all together in the house experiencing one of the most important fundamentals of life. And that is fellowship. You know, and I was just thinking about how important that is and how sometimes we Christians, we, we neglect that. You know, we isolate ourselves. You're not going to grow. You're not going to become a godly man and minister for the gospel of Jesus Christ if you don't fellowship. If you isolate yourself as an individual or you isolate yourself as a couple, no, we need to get together and we need to fellowship. Now, just in case you're wondering, well, does that mean that when two Christians get together that, you know, it's always fellowship? Not necessarily. I think two Christians can get together and whatever, just talk basketball or maybe the stock market or, you know, the latest news. And, you know, you start talking all the juicy, juicy stuff or whatever. And it can actually be um, the opposite of edification. It can be gossip. It can be you know, detrimental to your soul. Just because two Christians get together doesn't mean it's fellowship. But I tell you what, when you go to the house and you're together and Jesus is the center and he's preaching the word and you're talking Bible stuff and spiritual truths, it's then that you experience fellowship. And I want to encourage you guys to know that as a, it's one of the most fundamentals of life. Some of you here, you've stopped growing. You kind of hit like a block wall. And part of the reason is because you are not cultivating this vital fundamental of life as a Christian. And that is fellowship. Where you get together with other Christians and you don't just talk about, you know, whatever. But that you steer that conversation to spiritual things, you know, and, and when I see them getting together right here, I just think, wow, what a blessing this is, how important and helpful to fellowship in each other's houses, you know, and I think of the church, yeah, and I think of getting together afterwards and breaking bread, I think of all the things that we can do, but man, invite people over to your house and when they invite you over perhaps you know you would be open to that where you get believers together and they're teaching and they're talking bible that's what jesus is doing there in verse two notice again it says and he preached the word to them isn't that beautiful you guys i mean that was his priority huh i mean you know we read in mark 121 that he taught in Capernaum. And we read in Mark 1, 38 through 39, that he would go through the cities and he said, for this purpose I have come forth to preach. That was his priority, right? Just like we're doing here today, we're studying the scriptures. Not every church does that. But we open up our Bibles and we ask God to teach us and we try to break it down and we try to let him speak to us. That's what we're doing. We're preaching the word because we know it's this, the milk of the word that allows us to grow roots down so that we might grow up as Christians. Remember what Peter said, 1 Peter 2, 2, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, pure milk that you may grow thereby. I'll tell you what, man, there's a battle for your soul. There's a battle for you as a Christian to put it in cruise control, and the devil would love to do that, man, just to 
to, you know, extinguish the fire inside of you or the passion. You know, and, and you know, rather than growing forward, you find yourself, you know, falling back or in neutral and there's really nothing going on anymore. You guys, we got to get back into the word. We got to let Jesus teach us the word. You know, so important. That was his priority. This was the practice of Christ, and so this should be the practice of Christian ministers. That's why Paul, when he was about to die, he told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching, he says, because the day's going to come when people aren't going to want to hear the Bible anymore. And so what you got to do, Timothy, is you preach the word. People love the word. They'll fall in love with the truth of God. And then they're going to hunger and thirst for it even more. How important, you guys, this whole aspect of time with Jesus and hearing Jesus and being together as a family in the house, packed out, is to us. It's a fundamental uh, for us as Christians Another thing I think is important, notice there in verse 3, it says, And then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof. Think about that. Where he was. And so when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. Uh, one thing is important, and I want to make this practical for you. Fellowship. Go to their house. Let Jesus be the center. Let him preach the word. Come to church. Fellowship. But another thing that is vital for us is friendship. Friendship. Do you have that? A uh, British publication once offered a prize for the best definition of a friend and the winning definition was one I'm sure most of us have heard. A, a friend is one who comes in when the whole world has gone out. And that's true. They say you won't really know if you have a friend until you need a friend. You know, and those are classic quotations. But let me ask you a question. Is that the complete essence of what a friend really is? Now, Oswald Chambers said, a friend is one who makes me do my best. Another proverb says, a friend is one who warns you. George Herbert said, the best mirror is an old friend. Why is that? I guess that part of friendship is willing to tell you what you've done wrong or what's wrong with you. As a matter of fact, a lot of what I read about friendship has to do with people willing to shoot straight with us and tell it like it is. It's true, but again, is that the total essence of what a friend is? You know, some say a true friend is one who's there for you in hard times. Others say a true friend is the one who pushes you to be your best, and then there are others who would define friendship as unconditional acceptance. You know, one guy said you can always tell a real friend when You've made a fool of yourself, and he doesn't feel you've done a permanent job. You know, I think that's kind of cool. You know, a friend is someone who understands your past, believes in your future, and accepts you just the way you are. Again, those are all decent quotations, but you guys, at the end of the day, 
Is that the total essence of a friend? I don't think so. I I don't. I think you know that at the end of the day, the truth is that if they're true friends in the truest sense of the word, if they really care, they will carry you to Jesus. That's what a true friend is. That's what these guys are doing right here. You know, sometimes it's through prayer. I don't know if you ever have people on your heart, you know they're struggling. And, you know, I got, I got guys on my list, and I, and I pray for them because with, with, God just laid it on my heart. You know, um, I probably have a couple of people that are my friends who pray for me. They carry me to Jesus in prayer. Sometimes it's uh, spiritually, invisibly, other times it's something we actually do physically, right? I mean, you know, there's those times when they show up. They show up and they, you know, maybe drag you to church or they want a fellowship or they come over uninvited. And there's something physical, visible about it. I really believe a true friend, if they really care, will carry you to Jesus. Do you have a true friend? You're like, yeah, man, they've always been there for me. That doesn't necessarily mean they're a true friend. Because one day, you know, we're going to die. We're going we're gonna to stand before God. And the true friend is the one who cares for you spiritually. And they care enough to carry you to Jesus. Do you have a friend like that? You know, there are probably some of you here whose best friend is not a Christian. You want to know something? If you're a Christian and your best friend is not a Christian, then you are unequally yoked. What kind of, what kind of counsel are they going to give you if they don't even know the godly counsel of God's word? I'm not saying that you have to get rid of them. Of course, you love them and you reach out to them, but you pray, God, bring me a Christian friend, someone who will care enough for me to carry me to Jesus. You know, it's interesting, when these guys brought this friend of theirs to Jesus, they really brought him to Jesus. I mean, that's what we read. Look at verse 3, if you would, again. Then they came to him. It doesn't say they came to the house. It says they came to him, bringing a paralytic man who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him, there it is again. You know, you might want to circle that. Because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was so when they had broken through they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying and matthew 9 and luke chapter 5 the parallel accounts tell us that they when they dropped him down they put him down right in front of him you see because that's what true friends do they they bring their friends to him you see a a friend is not just one who takes you to the house no they get you to him, they were focused on getting their friend to Jesus. And, and I pray that you would have friends like that, that you would recognize, listen, that you would recognize that those people who care for your spiritual walk, those are your true friends. And that we would actually live that way as well. You see, a friend is not just being there for you wherever you are but taking you to where Jesus is. 
Now, sometimes people are considered friends because they've known each other for a long time, but I really think true friendship is not just knowing each other, but helping each other know the Lord. Because these are, these are important things in life, you guys. Whether you win or lose in life has a lot to do with your fellowship and has a lot to do with your friendship. You know, we got to learn from these guys. One, fellowship. Two, friendship. This, the third thing I, I see is, is, number three, their faith. Look at verse 5. It says, when Jesus saw their faith. Jesus saw these guys and these friends are exercising their friendship by bringing their paralyzed pal to Jesus. But the problem is they can't get into the house. It's jam-packed. Have you guys ever seen those videos? Or I, I think it's usually videos where they try to pack as many people into a Volkswagen as they can. Have you guys ever seen that? That would be fun. We should do it after service. What do you guys think? We should just try it. Come on, some of you young adults. Anyways, you know... I mean, so there you know, so many people packed into this house, right? It's as tight as it can be, no room whatsoever. And so, you know, like, what do you do? It's a closed door, right? I mean, literally, uh, we, we read there in verse 2, there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. The Bible is trying to emphasize this. And so what would the typical person do, typically, the nominal person would do is they would go home. They would give up. Maybe we'll try again tomorrow. It must not be God's will. Right? Wrong. Our God's bigger than that. And your faith, it needs to grow stronger than that. No, these great friends, they don't give up. They look up and with eyes of faith, they suddenly get the divine details and they get vision from God and they know the Lord is leading them. I got an idea. Let's tear a hole in the roof. Yeah, these guys need a sunroof anyways, you know? And, and, that, and you guys, that's, that's, that's Christianity. That's vision. That's faith, right? I mean, some might would say they're, they're crazy, and, and yeah, a little bit. They say it's not really love anyways unless it makes you do something crazy. And, and by crazy, I don't mean unbiblical or disobedient, just radical and real and righteous outside of our box of human limitations and unbelief beyond what we would consider to be human logic. No, give me the logic of God. Give me his marching orders that would have never come to my own mind. You guys, in all of our lives here, I believe that for some of us here, we are not listening to the Lord. The Lord has the answer. You think it's a closed door. You think it's a done deal. You think you've done everything you can, but you can't help. But God is saying, my son, my daughter, listen. Look deeper. There's, a, there's an answer for you. It's called faith. And what these guys did is in those days, they had the roofs that were flat. They had the the stairs that would be outside the house and they went up on the top. The beams were three feet in between and it wasn't too hard, but it was a little laborious and they opened up. They knew exactly where Jesus was. They opened up and boom, they let their friend down right in front of Christ. And so Jesus saw their faith. How did Jesus see their faith? Well, partially because Jesus was able to see what was going on on the inside but it was also because Jesus was able to see what was going on on the outside, huh? I mean, how did they experience the breakthrough? 
the break through the roof, how did they experience that? With saws and claws and hands and hammers? No, it was by faith, right? They were able to show their faith. James says something like that. In chapter 2, verse 18, he says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. He's saying you can't, but I will show you my faith by my works. And I'm telling you this, you guys, no matter what it is, no matter what it is, whenever you are attempting to do something great for God, it requires a step of faith. God honors that. When Moses lifted up the rod, the Red Sea was open. When the priests entered into the Jordan, they had to step in first. It was parted right in front of them to enter into the promised land. You know, Jesus undoubtedly saw their heart, the faith in their heart, but he also saw the hole, the hole in the roof. Jesus saw the whole way. These friends knew that if they could just get their friend to Jesus, then he would definitely be able to meet his needs. And so they believed and they received. When you have faith, you keep going. When you don't, you quit. I tell you what, I'm, how old am I now, Shelly? Um, I forgot how old I am, but I'm getting up there, okay? And I, one of the things I learned in life, I'll tell you this, is the worst thing to do is to, to be a quitter to be a quitter. There was a few times I, I quit a few things in my life. I don't know if you've ever done that. You know, maybe it was that one AAU wrestling side thing that my coach told me. He said, hey, you know, wrestling high school is cool, but if you really want to win CIF and do all these kind of things, then you should wrestle AAU on the side. And, you know, I, I, I didn't. You know, you start something, you quit. Man, I tell you what, if I could, I would go back in the blink of an eye and I would do it because I've learned in life that the quitting part is the part that, that just, it ruins everything. And some people, they do that. They quit on their marriage, you know, and it could be manifested in so many ways, whether it be the end of someone's marriage because God hates divorce. He knows what it does to everybody involved, even the witnesses of that marriage. And so, you know, a lot of times they quit. And what was happening was God was saying, I was just challenging you, man, to maybe see if you could see with eyes of faith. Not just divorce, but I'm talking about marriages that for whatever reason, the husband and wife, they've learned to be content with you know, living way down here on the bottom of the mountain when God said, I want you on the top. I don't want your marriage just to survive. I, I want it to thrive. I want to bless you. But uh, a lot of times we, we quit on the marriage. We can even quit on our kids. And I can talk to so many parents and their children are struggling so big time. And then I think of the Syrophoenician woman when she came to Jesus and she said, Lord, I know I'm a, I'm a woman. I know I'm a Gentile. And Jesus said, you're right. You know, I'm here for the Jews. And, you know, kind of like in one sense, it could, could be seen as a discouragement. But, but she just kept passionately praying. Not just praying, okay, I'm going to flip it up. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't given up. But no, I believe that if you could just allow me to have a little bit of those crumbs off the table, and I know it's not too hard for you, Lord, then my daughter, who's severely demon-possessed, 
will be healed. And she fought. She didn't stop. Hosea didn't give up on the marriage, even though his wife had been sleeping around in prostitution, now found herself being, you know, available to buy on the slave market. He didn't give up. The Syrophoenician woman, she didn't give up on her children, and we shouldn't either. As a matter of fact, our fight should grow. I think of Bartimaeus who said, Rabboni, that I might see. And, and just, man, the woman with the flow of blood, and it didn't look like she could really get her way. She had been struggling for 12 years. She tried everything, spent all her money, all the doctors. But she just said to herself, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I know that I'll be healed. You see, you guys, these are, this is real life. God has a plan for your life, and I don't know what it is, but it's great. It's awesome. It is the only thing that will satisfy your soul. God has a plan, but so does the devil. The devil's studying you. The devil is wondering, how can I make them fall? How can I ruin their life? And all along the way, we will be tested. God is going to be there to encourage you. God is going to be there to teach you, and God is going to be there to to, to reach out to you. But you are not a robot. You are not. You, we are not puppets. We have to choose to follow him. And the way we do that is is by faith. We We don't give up. You know, in looking at these guys right here, I tell you what, man, that's their their faith. We want to learn from this. We want to learn from the the lesson of fellowship, the lesson of friendship, the, the lesson of faith. And then the last one, so important, you guys. Look look what happens again in verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We ain't never seen anything like this before. Oh, man. What's, what's our greatest need? What's your greatest need? You're like, well, Manny, I'm paralyzed. I sure would like to walk. You know, and I don't know. I mean, you see a person, they're paralyzed there. They can't move. Your heart goes out to them. And we would immediately think, well, their greatest need is, is healing, that they would walk. And you look at that guy over there and he doesn't got a job and it's been a while. His greatest need is, is money. 
Or, you know, you look at that, that gal over there and she's single and she's lonely and you're just thinking their greatest need, their greatest need, God, would you just bring them a husband? And truly, truly, our hearts go out to these types of situations. But you guys, you got to know this, that, that those, they're, they're cool, but they are not our greatest need. Our greatest need is forgiveness. Forgiveness. You know, when these guys brought their friend to Jesus, I'm sure they weren't thinking along those lines, even though they had great faith. But, you know, Jesus there in verse 5, he says, uh, son, and a better translation would actually be child. Child, your sins are forgiven you. And I, and, I, and I believe, I was reading some teachers on this, and they were talking about how there's nowhere in the Bible where Jesus would forgive sins apart from faith and repentance. And so, you know, who knows why this guy was paralyzed? Perhaps it was because of his sin. You know, and that's not always the case. Physical calamities are not always because of someone's sins, but sometimes it is the case. And in this case, perhaps it was and here he is, and he goes to Jesus, and, and, you know, we give all the credit to his friends, but there was part of him that wanted to go as well, and he had faith, and he had repentance in his heart, because it's then and only then that Jesus would forgive someone's sins. And so he, he deals with that, and I'll bet you almost anything, man. I mean, who knows how long he had been condemned and guilt you know, laden by the enemy. And I'll bet you, I mean, you know, I'm sure walking was cool, but when the Lord, think about this for a second, when Jesus spoke forgiveness over this man, imagine the burden that was lifted. You see, and that's what happens when we get saved. You know, when you really get saved, man, the, the Lord speaks those words over your life. Child, your sins are forgiven. I tell you what, that's awesome, man. You know, that was just their moment. That was his moment with that man. Amazing. I'll never forget the day that I got my sins forgiven. I'll never forget it. Experience of a lifetime when I went forward to receive Christ. And he saved me. And he forgave me. Have you experienced that? Do you know for sure that you're forgiven? You're like, well, Manny, I, I go to church. It doesn't mean you're saved doesn't mean you're forgiven. Man, I've been going all my life. It doesn't mean you're saved. You got to know your greatest need, my friend, is forgiveness. I don't care how bad life is. I don't care what's going on in your life. Our greatest need is forgiveness. Only Jesus can do that. You know, it's interesting, these guys right here, these religious leaders, they, they had a hard time with this. And, 
in their hearts, their reasoning, uh, verse 7, their reasoning, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And, and Jesus knew what they were thinking. Luke 5.17 says it wasn't just the scribes and experts in the law. It was actually the Pharisees who had been sent there to scrutinize Jesus. They had been sent there to see what's this guy all about, you know, and um, from Judea, from Jerusalem. And the Lord, he reads their hearts. He knows what they're thinking, right? And so he says, hey, what's up, you guys? Why are you, why are you saying this in your heart? Why do you guys have a problem with this? He says, let me share something with you. In verse 9, which is easier to say to you, the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? I mean, if there was a guy right here, think about it, and he was lying down in the bed, and he was paralyzed, and I told him your sins are forgiven you, you know, everybody goes home and they think, well, that, that might be true. Maybe Manny was right when he said his sins are forgiven. But if the guy was paralyzed right there and I said, stand up and walk. Now that has to be proven. That's really a more difficult thing to say. And so the Lord, he says this, you got a problem with me saying that I have forgiven this man? This is what he says, that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, rise, take up your bed, go to your house, and walk. And boom, the guy does. And, you know, it proves his deity, uh, that he's God. He's not only the Son of Man, uh, he's the Son of God. You know, they were right, only God can forgive sins. But they were wrong because they thought Jesus was just a man. But it's interesting to me that Jesus doesn't really do it primarily for that reason. He doesn't say that you may know I'm the, I'm the son of God. He doesn't say that you may know I'm deity. He just says that you may know that the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins. Boom, this is what I want you to see. And you guys, here's the thing, um, that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. What that means is that we can know here and now on earth that we're forgiven. You know, a lot of times, and you guys, I don't know if you talk to people or friends, perhaps they're uh, Catholics or maybe Muslims, a lot of the religions, uh, they believe you can't know. You can't know that, you know, you do your best and you try to hope that your good works outweigh your bad works and one day you stand before God and, and, and then you'll find out whether or not your sins are really forgiven. But that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what Jesus said. That's not Christianity. Christianity says that you can know here and now on earth that your sins are forgiven. You know, are, do, you, do you know that? You know, when you give your life to Christ and you admit you're a sinner in need of a Savior, I need Jesus. He died for me. Three nails, one cross. You added it up, forgiven. And you look to Jesus. And I'm not talking about playing church. Some of you guys here, and it almost turns my stomach. You're not real. 
you're not really committed to Christ. You go to church, maybe you're trying to make somebody happy, not God. You got one foot in the world, and you got one foot in the church, and you're still doing drugs, and you're still drinking, and you're still checking out chicks, and you're still looking at porn. And you think you're okay because you go to church. Let me tell you something. You know a tree by its fruit. You know, some people, they go to church service and uh, they don't have a hunger really for the Bible. They don't have a hunger to pray. Some guys, they're not even interested in loving their wife. Not even interested, having an affair. Some gals caught up in things. You guys, you can fool all the people some of the time, and you can fool some of the people all the time, but you, you can't. You can't fool God. And I say that, you know, not to, not to beat you up. Actually, I want to be your friend. You're like, ah, oh, he doesn't want to be my friend. <laughs> One person said this, a friend is not someone who rubs it in, they rub it out. And I like that. If I could somehow rub it out today by just, just challenging you with this, make it real. Own it. Give your life to Christ. Give your heart to Christ. Because nothing else is going to get you to heaven. You know, Prince, he died. And Prince is standing before the king. One day you're going to die. You're like, well, I'm not 57 yet. It doesn't matter. We don't know. Nobody knows. My friend, you must get ready for the day you will stand before God. It is inevitable. And on that day, you will find out whether or not you're real. I'm not trying to you know, cause doubt to the Christian, but I neither do I want to give a false assurance to the non-Christian. You know, when, when we're here, and, and maybe, you know, you're here, and we can almost visualize it like this, you got guys that are trying to bring you and put you in front of Jesus, man. And when Jesus looks into your heart, does he see faith? Does he see repentance? Because if he does, then he will speak those words over your life, the most important words that you'll ever hear, that you need to hear, and that is that you are forgiven. You know, Carl Menninger was a world-renowned psychiatrist, and he said that if he could convince the patients in his psychiatric hospitals that their sins were forgiven, he said 75% of them would walk out freely the next day. That's how important the removal of guilt and condemnation and forgiveness is. Now for us, it's not the psychiatrist, it's the theist, not manufacturing some type of imaginary forgiveness, but a genuine forgiveness found only in Jesus Christ. And what we're trying to do is not just keep you out of the hospital, but to keep you out of hell. And so where, where will you spend eternity? 
The choice is yours. If you choose Jesus, I mean really choose Jesus. The Bible says as many as received him, to them he, they became children of God. You really choose Jesus. Today, right here, right now, on earth, right here, it, it changes everything. Has Jesus said that to you? What he said to the paralyzed man, your, your sins are, are forgiven you. You know, if not, I pray that today uh, that would take place, that we would learn our lessons of uh, fellowship and, and friendship and faith, but especially that, that one of forgiveness. Oh, man, let me tell you something. He loves you so much that he died for you on the cross. He shed his blood. He painted that mountain a Calvary red. Before he ever flung a star into the sky, he thought of you, and he has plans for your life. But you are not a robot. You have been given a free will. I pray, you guys, today, that you would use that volitional exercise that you've been given, that freedom of choice, to say today, I, I choose I choose to follow Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, we thank you so much for your love and your grace in our life. And Father, I, I, I know the importance of, uh, of fellowship, getting together in people's houses or even in this house where your son is the center and where you are teaching us your word. And Lord, I know the importance of friendship. I used to think it was just guys that were buddies for a long time, the guys that would be there for you through thick and thin. But now I'm realizing it's more than that. It's guys, it's people, it's friends that will carry me to Jesus. Oh, Lord, I thank you that you're teaching us that our faith needs to grow beyond the nominal to where we would see Lord, your will that goes beyond human logic or limitations to see you move, Lord, in a mighty way that you would even see our faith. Lord, I pray more than anything else for your sweet church because we also need to confess our sins that we would be forgiven in a, in a, in a practical way. But Lord, I pray for the people here that, that are not. There, I know there are some here that, Lord, that you're drawing to you. And I pray that they wouldn't think it's too hard or complicated or sophisticated as some type of religion that they have to sign up for. That it's just a, a matter of the heart or it's a relationship. That today in the deepest recesses, of many hearts, Lord, that you would move. Some, Lord, that you would never think. They, their parents are Christians. Their spouse is a Christian. But in all reality, they are not a Christian. They know. They know because there is no fruit in their life. Oh, Lord. I pray that today, 
every heart here would choose to follow you. Lord, that we would repent of our unbelief, that we would repent of our sins. Gotta let it go. And that we would receive Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of our life. Thank you, Lord, so much. Because I know, Lord, when that happens, that you will speak over their life. My child, your sins are forgiven you. We love you, Lord. We thank you so much for the gospel. And we pray, Lord, you continue to work in us, Lord, and and fan the flame and do a work that is just so glorifying to you, that's so real, that is so loud. Thank you, Lord, for loving us the way that you do. And together we pray in Jesus' name. We hope you were encouraged by this study. If you have any questions, please call us at Calvary Chapel El Monte at air code 626-454-3414. Remember that Jesus loves you.